0: Delighted that you're here. While our number is down, we have a number of visitors with us. We're glad that you're here and hope you can come back and be with us again. I've been asked if I could address the subject of the Holy Spirit and answer some questions relative to that. We want to focus on the Holy Spirit's role in conversion and talk about when and how the Spirit operates in cases of conversion. Here's some of the questions we're going to seek to answer. What does the Spirit do in our conversion? The Bible affirms the Holy Spirit has a role in that, but what does he do and what does he not do in our conversion? (laughs) Secondly, how does the Spirit operate upon man in conversion? When we find out what it is he does, how does he do it? How does he accomplish that? And thirdly, why did some receive the Holy Spirit before conversion like Cornelius and others did not? Good question. We'll talk about that and give some answers that the text is going to share for us. Here's what we're going to see. Five themes. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Our focal point is not to do an exhaustive study, say, of Holy Spirit baptism or of the indwelling of the Spirit or miraculous gifts, but we're going to touch on each of those as they relate to answering the question at hand. And so let's begin by talking about different measures of the Spirit, And so I encourage you to get your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 3 and in verse 34. I want us to talk a little bit about the fact that there are different measures of the Spirit. Meaning by that, that one could, the Bible may affirm this one received the Holy Spirit, and the Bible may affirm someone else received the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't the same thing. And if we can just show that, that they weren't the same thing, then we've established they are different measures of the Spirit. So let's look at John chapter 3 and in verse 34, where the Bible says that the Spirit was not given by measure unto him, that is, unto Christ. John three thirty-four, for he whom God sent speaks the words of God, speaking of Christ, for God does not give the Spirit by measure, The King James says, unto him. So let's see what that says. God does not give the Spirit by measure unto Him. What that tells us is the Spirit was not given by measure unto Christ. Christ is the subject of the context. We'll come back to that in a moment. The Spirit was not given by measure unto Christ. That suggests that the Spirit was given by measure unto others. And therefore, that passage would be affirming that the Spirit is given in different measures. Well, let's just argue for the case uh, that that passage doesn't even say that. We can still establish the fact that the Spirit was given by different measures by showing that what the apostles received and what we received is totally different. So therefore, the Spirit was given by measure. But let's go back to this text for a moment. The argument is made that the passage is saying the Spirit was not given by measure, period. The unto him is in italics, as you see in the King James, if you have that. Which means it's been supplied by translators. And so the argument is that it was not given by measure. God doesn't give the Spirit by measure. So what he gives to one, he gives to someone else. And so if this one receives the Spirit, whatever the apostles received, and whatever Cornelius received, is the same thing that I receive. And so we all have the same measure, because there are no measures of the Spirit. But I want to suggest to you, the answer to that is that the unto him is implied by the context and that's why it was supplied by these translators and others did not. It's implied by the context. Notice at verse 31 and then verse 32 and then we'll see again at verse 33 and then again at verse 34. Look at verse 31, that he who came from above and is above all, verse 32, again speaking of Christ, he's talking about what's true of him that what he has seen, he has heard, and he testifies, verse 33, he has received his testimony. Now in verse 34, for he whom God has sent, he's talking about Christ throughout, and then he says, the Spirit was not given by measure. The point is, speaking about Christ, that it wasn't given by measure unto him. That's the point of the context. Otherwise, it seems to be out of context to talk about Christ, 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 and then turn and say the Spirit wasn't given by measure. God doesn't give different measures of the Spirit. But be that as it may, let's go further to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, we're trying to establish there are different measures of the Spirit. What we're trying to show is that what one received is not the same thing that someone else necessarily received. Acts 11 and verse 17, this is talking about the household of Cornelius that God gave them the like gift, even as he did unto us. Now the like gift suggests that there are some gifts that are unlike, or that is, they're not like the same. Now, here is the text. For as much as God gave them the like gift, as he did unto us, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? So what Cornelius received was the like gift to the apostles. That is, it was the same gift that the apostles received. Secondly, that means it's possible to have a gift that's not like the apostles, that one can have a gift of the spirit and it not be like the apostles. Evidence of that is the Bible promises the gift of the spirit in uh, Acts 2.38 or Romans chapter 8 to those who are New Testament Christians, that's not the same as that of the apostles. If all have the same gift, then why call it the like gift? In other words, if we passed out gifts this morning to everyone and I say, you know, well, my gift is like someone else's, that implies that there are some gifts somewhere that are unlike that. And that's what we learned from Acts chapter 11 in verse 17. Now let's go further and suggest that if all have the same gift, then all have the same gift of the apostles. Now let's consider that. All have or receive the Holy Spirit. That's true. The apostles received the Holy Spirit. Those who had spiritual gifts received the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 shows that all Christians today receive the Holy Spirit. But that's not the same gift. But each one of those is called a gift of the Spirit. So the Bible will affirm the apostles received a gift of the Spirit. Those with spiritual gifts received a gift of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. And Christians today receive a gift of the Spirit. But that's not all the same thing. A parallel to that would be... uh, That we all receive a gift of rain. One person receives a downpour, but over at your house you might receive a shower and someone else receives a sprinkle, but that's not all the same measure. But we all see receive the gift of rain, but that doesn't mean we receive the same kind of gift. So just because the Bible says that someone receives the Spirit doesn't mean they're receiving the same thing that someone else received when it says they received the Spirit. That's what we're trying to establish. So, here is the idea. Let's get the point. The point that we're learning from the different measures of the Spirit is that there are different measures of the Spirit. We're going to illustrate that in a moment. And not everyone who received the Spirit received the same thing, not everyone received the same measure. That's what we're trying to establish. So, in that there are different measures of the Spirit, let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that's going to be important to answer the question concerning Cornelius. So, let's talk about Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism, there are two cases that were recorded in the New Testament. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it was an overwhelming of the Spirit. Much as one is baptized in water, they are overwhelmed with water. They are submerged in water. They are baptized or buried in water. So consequently, when one is baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were overwhelmed with the power of the Spirit. So let's see what the Bible says about the two cases of Holy Spirit baptism. The first case is that of the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, they were promised Holy Spirit baptism. Let's turn to Acts 1 and in verse 5. Acts 1 and in verses 4 and 5, the apostles were promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Look at Acts chapter 1 and in verse 5. John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That was a promise to the apostles. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Well, the apostles received it on the day of Pentecost. Turn over now one page. When you come to the end of Acts chapter 1 in verse 21, notice that Matthias was numbered with the 11 apostles. You might underline that. Then start at verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come they. They who? It's the apostles. What about them? They were all in one place in one accord, and suddenly a sound came from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they, that is the apostles, were setting. And there appeared upon them cloven tongues, like as a fire, and set upon each of them, that is the apostles, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as God gave them utterance, or as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the apostles were promised Holy Spirit baptism, the apostles received Holy Spirit baptism. Now what was the purpose of that? The purpose of Holy Spirit baptism was, according to John chapter 16 and in verse 13, was to reveal truth. The Spirit would come upon them and guide them into all truth. He would show them things to come. He would teach them all things, John 14, 26, and bring all things to their remembrance, John 14, 26. In other words, the Holy Spirit would overwhelm them, and they would be able to speak in tongues, but they would furthermore be able to reveal truth and be overwhelmed with the power of the Spirit. So what was the purpose? For the revealing of truth, showing all things, and bringing all things to their remembrance. Now the second case is where we want to focus, and that is the case of Cornelius, So we need to establish, did Cornelius receive Holy Spirit baptism? Well, let's go to Acts chapter 10, because this is where this is recorded. So much of our answers to the question is going to be found in Acts chapters 10 and 11. Acts chapter 10 and 11. Acts 10 and in verse 45. When the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius. Now remember, Cornelius is not a Christian. He is yet to be baptized. Verse 47 and 48. The Holy Spirit fell upon him before that, and we'll answer why that was true in just a moment. But look at verse 45. Those of the circumcision who have believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Gentiles also. Now That within itself doesn't prove that. But they received a gift also, meaning like someone else did. Well, let's see what else he said. Look at verse 47. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. That is, we apostles. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. What does Acts 11 have to do with this? Well, Acts 11 is where Peter went to Jerusalem and told them about it and they wanted to know why did you go over among the Gentiles? So he rehearses the matter from the beginning. Here's what happened. I I received this vision, I went to Cornelius and Cornelius sent for me and I went to him and I preached to him and here's what happened. Now notice at verse 15, And as I began, you might underline the word began, that's important for a point later on. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Did you catch what he said? Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us at the beginning. What Cornelius received was just like what we had at the beginning. That is in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 16. Whatever took place reminded them of Acts chapter 2. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Whatever he saw happened to Cornelius, he said, it reminded me of the promise that we would receive Holy Spirit baptism. Peter thought it was the same thing. Look at verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift, King James says, like gift, even as he did unto us. They received the same gift, like he did unto us. Put a marker there at Acts 11. We're coming back. Let's go to Acts 15. When this discussion comes up at Jerusalem now, at the Jerusalem discussion, or some call it the Jerusalem conference, in Acts 15 over circumcision, Peter tells them what happened at the household of Cornelius. So he said at verse 8, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did unto us. Abundant evidence shows they received the same thing the apostles received. But now, let's talk about this. What was the purpose of that? Why did Cornelius receive the Spirit before he was baptized? What was the purpose? Let's go back to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. The purpose was to prove that the Gentiles are now gospel subjects. The gospel had gone to the Jews first. The gospel had not yet been preached to the Gentiles Cornelius is the first Gentile convert. God had to prove to Peter through the vision that he was to go to the Gentiles. But How do we know now God approves of this? Well, notice in Acts chapter 11, when this was being retold re- before the uh, brethren at Jerusalem, notice their conclusion. Look at verse 18. After he said, here's what happened, they received the same gift even as he did unto us. When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, what was their conclusion? If the Holy Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius before he was baptized, did they conclude he was saved before he was baptized? No, that's not what they concluded. Did they conclude from that we can now receive the spirit like Cornelius did? That's not what they concluded. Here's what they concluded. Then has God also granted to the Gentiles repentance and unto life. You might underline that. There's your key. Verse 18 says, here was the purpose. It was to prove that the Gentiles are now gospel subjects. Now that we know Gentiles are gospel subjects, we do not need the overwhelming of the Spirit on a convert before he is converted to prove he's a gospel subject. You say, why not? Because we have that from the case of Cornelius. We know that. We have God's divine stamp of approval upon that. That was the purpose for it falling on the household of Cornelius, to prove that Gentiles are now gospel subjects. Well, let's give a little further evidence of that by looking at verse 17. Peter said that was his conclusion. He said, when this happened, he said, who was I that I could withstand God? In other words, God was sending me a message by that. Well, let's back up to chapter 10. At verse 10 he said, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He concluded I can baptize a Gentile just like I could baptize a Jew. So that was the conclusion that was driven from the falling of the Holy Spirit on the household of Cornelius. Now, before we leave that, let me back up to say, let's go back to Acts chapter 11 and in verse 15, I had you underlined the word believe. <clears throat> Does this prove that Cornelius was saved then? Some have argued that if the Holy Spirit fell on the household of Cornelius, that gives evidence that he was saved before he was baptized, or else the Holy Spirit wouldn't have fallen upon him. If that proves that Cornelius was saved without baptism, it will prove that he was saved without faith. You say, how do you know? Look back at verse 15. Verse 15, Peter said, As I began to speak, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, not after he finished speaking. But as I begin to speak, at the very beginning of his speech, that's when the Holy Spirit fell upon him. Cornelius has not heard the message in order to induce faith. So if the reception of Holy Spirit proves you're saved without baptism, it proves he was saved without faith and without repentance. Doesn't prove a thing about his salvation. All it proved was Gentiles are now gospel subject. So to answer the question, why did some receive the Holy Spirit before they were baptized? Cornelius is a case of that, and that was to prove that Gentiles are now gospel subjects. But now while we're talking about Holy Spirit baptism, to show a distinction between that and other gifts, let's talk about what those with the Holy Spirit baptism could do. This is not an exhaustive list, nor am I going to spend a great deal of time. I just want to give you a, a kind of an inkling of what took place to show that what we might receive today is not the same as what the Holy Spirit, falling upon the apostles or the household of Cornelius, would do. Those baptized with the Spirit could speak with other tongues. We see that in Acts chapter 2. We see that in Acts chapter 10. They could also heal the lame, like in Acts chapter 3. They could strike one dead miraculously. They could also raise the dead, like with Dorcas or Eutychus. They could strike one blind miraculously. Just speak and he become blind? They could speak without taking thought. Matthew 10 and verse 19. They could impart miraculous gifts. That's important. We're going to come back to that. They could lay hands on someone else. The apostles could lay hands on someone else and they receive powers that were miraculous. Acts chapter 8 verses 17 and 18. Now no one can perform any of those things today. Consequently then no one receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about Ephesians 4 and in verse 5. How do I know, other than the fact there's uh, lack of evidence that anyone is empowered with the Holy Spirit, like the apostles? How do I know Holy Spirit baptism has ceased? Ephesians 4 and in verse 5. There is one Lord, one faith, and the text says there is one baptism. Now I want to show you that there is a distinction in Holy Spirit baptism and in water baptism. How do they differ? They differ in their element, who administers it, the nature and the purpose. Our point here is not to be exhaustive, but just to show you there is a distinction. And since the Bible says there is one baptism, if there is still a purpose for this one, then there is not a purpose for this one anymore. What's the difference? Well, there are difference in element. Here they're baptized with the Spirit. Over here we're baptized with water. The one who administers Holy Spirit baptism was Christ, John one thirty three. but it's men who are minister water baptism. The nature is different. This one was a promise. No one was ever commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You won't find that anywhere in the New Testament, where one was commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They were promised Holy Spirit baptism, but you do find that men are commanded to be baptized. They're not promised water baptism, but commanded to be baptized. The purpose of this one was to reveal truth, over here the purpose was to save. So if the Bible says there is one baptism, the one baptism is water baptism because this need still stands, this one does not. And so no Holy Spirit baptism for believers today. So here was our point in talking about Holy Spirit baptism, that no one today receives it. And when Cornelius did receive it, what was his purpose of receiving it? It was to prove that Gentiles could be saved. That was the whole point. But let's go further now. Let's look at a third thing. I know there are different measures of the Spirit. And what Cornelius received was Holy Spirit baptism, and we see the purpose for that. Thirdly, let's talk about the miraculous spiritual gifts. What are we talking about when we talk about the miraculous spiritual gifts? Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts, the 8th chapter. Those on whom the apostles laid hands could work miracles. Let's go to Acts 8, 17 and 18. The apostles laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to the context in a moment. Catch up. Verse 18 said, then Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given and he offered them money. You remember that story. That's Acts chapter 8. Let's go over to Acts 19. We won't notice all the references on the screen, but Acts chapter 19, this is at Ephesus where Paul comes and they said they didn't know if there was even a Holy Spirit. Verse 6, Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. So here was an apostle laying hands on and imparting miraculous spiritual gifts. That's all we're trying to establish. Those on whom the apostles laid hands could work miraculous spiritual gifts. There is no indication, this is an important point, There is no indication that those powers could be transferred. That's an important point. I want to make that again. There is no biblical indication that those powers could be transferred. In fact, there is biblical indication that the powers could not be transferred. Here's how that works. Here was an apostle who has the power of the Spirit. He could lay hands on this Christian, and now that Christian has the power of the Spirit, and he could work miracles. There is no indication that that Christian then could lay hands on another one, and he then received miraculous gifts. Evidence? Let's go back to Acts chapter 8. Let's go back to Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 and verse 6. Philip had the power to work miracles. He was not an apostle. Philip had the power to work miracles, according to verse 6. The multitude was was amazed in hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. But I want you to notice at verse 14 now. They had to call for an apostle to come and lay hands that the Spirit might be imparted. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they came, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit For he had not yet fallen on them. Now Philip had been there, but he couldn't impart the gift. It was apostles who had to come. Now notice at verse 17, they laid hands on them and they received the power of the Spirit. Now if this could be done, then why was the need for the apostles coming at verse 14? So what's our point about that? Our point about that, no one today receives spiritual gifts. That wasn't the same that the apostles had, by the way. Because the apostles had a power of the Spirit where they could transfer the power, but the one who received it couldn't transfer the power. So it must be a different gift. It was never called in 1 Corinthians 12, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Never called that. So it must be a different gift. So I'm learning from this that no one today receives spiritual gifts. No apostle is around to impart spiritual gifts. So if that's how it was received, and it was, if no apostle is around, then there's no imparting of spiritual gifts. And furthermore, 1 Corinthians 13 says these miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased. So no Holy Spirit baptism today. A different measure of the Spirit was the miraculous gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, the imparted by the laying on of the apostles' hands. That's no more. So whatever we receive is different from Holy Spirit baptism and the miraculous spiritual gifts measure. A different gift. So let's focus now. Number four, on the Holy Spirit and how he works in conversion. Now we noted earlier that what Cornelius received had nothing directly to do with his conversion, only to prove that he could be converted. That's all it proved. It had nothing to do with his conversion. It didn't convict him of his sin. It didn't convert him. Didn't make him a believer. Didn't make him an unbeliever. It didn't do anything except prove that the Gentiles are now gospel subjects. That's all it proved. The Holy Spirit had nothing to do, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with his conversion directly. But let's establish the fact the Holy Spirit has a role in every one of our conversions. If you have been converted and you're a New Testament Christian, the Holy Spirit had a role in that. And let's see what that is. Let's establish the fact that all three persons of the Godhead have a part in our conversion. And I'll tell you why this is important. The Father planned it from all eternity, Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 4, before the creation of the world, God had planned and chose us in Him. Christ came to execute the plan. The Son executed the plan. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Holy Spirit then revealed it, Paul said, that it was by the Spirit that I wrote a few words whereby when you read you may understand. Now why do I mention all three? There will be passages that say that we are saved and we're saved by God the Father. And you say, okay, I got that. God the Father saved But then you go to another passage and it says we're saved by Christ. And then you go to another passage and it says we're saved by the Holy Spirit. Well, which is it? Is that a contradiction? I thought we were saved by the Father, but this one says we're saved by the Son, and that one says we're saved by the Holy Spirit. How, what is this? All three had a part in our salvation. So some passages will focus on the Father's work, others will focus on the Son's work, and some will focus on the Holy Spirit's work. Now, when the Bible says we're saved by the Father, that doesn't mean the Son wasn't involved. And when the Bible says we're saved by the Son, that doesn't mean the Father wasn't there involved in the planning of that. Each one has a different role, but some passages focus on one aspect while another focuses on a different aspect. Our point is, the Holy Spirit has some role in our conversion. Let's see if we can figure out what that is. So let's turn to John 16, beginning at verse 7. And here's the passage that tells us what the Spirit does. It doesn't tell us how He does it. It just tells us what He does. The Holy Spirit's going to have a role in our conversion. Let's see if we can figure out what that is. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's your advantage that I go away. But if I do uh, do not go away, the Helper will not come. The Helper is the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He has come... He will, notice at verse 8, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. There's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not through with that text. We're going to read the rest of that. But the Holy Spirit is going to come when I pour the Spirit upon the apostles. Jesus is saying, they're going to go forth and preach. And the Holy Spirit then is going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What do you mean? Well, of sin, verse 9, because the world, they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you'll see me no more. And of judgment, because the rule of the world is to be judged. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the idea that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The The word convict means to convince with evidence. The Holy Spirit is going to convict and convince the world with evidence of three things. What are they? Of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In other words, the the Holy Spirit will convince one they are a sinner and they need to be saved. He's going to convince them they can be saved and they can become righteous. And the urgency of doing that is there is a judgment day to come. The Holy Spirit's going to do that. How is not told in that text. Just the fact, the how is not told. Now, here's a number of things the Holy Spirit does. And that's why I spent time with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit just a moment ago. The Bible says we're saved by the Spirit. Here's different ways of wording that. And I'm not going to be spend a great deal of time with this. We're born of the Spirit. We're quickened by the Spirit. We're made free by the Spirit. We're washed by the Spirit, sanctified and justified by the Spirit. We're called by the Spirit. Uh, We're quickened by the Spirit. A number of passages say that the Spirit has a role in our salvation. Again, the how is not told in those passages. Just the fact that He does it. The Holy Spirit convinces us we're sinners. He convinces us we can become righteous and tells us how to be righteous and tells us there's a judgment day to come. The Holy Spirit has a role. Here's the important question. How does the Spirit operate upon us? How does the Spirit operate upon us? When we raise that question, here are two possible ways he does that. And I'll I'll tell you why we talk about the two possibilities. We have the Holy Spirit here. And here is the one that needs to be convicted of sin and of righteousness and judgment. We know what the Spirit does. How does he do it? Does the Spirit do that directly upon him? Miraculously somehow? Or does he operate through the word? What's the difference? Well, some have an idea. And I'll give you a hint at that in just a moment that the Spirit operates directly so that you become aware you're a sinner because the Spirit works directly upon you against your will, that's important, against your will to make you aware you're a sinner and make you a believer. And so you say, well, I've got faith in my heart. Where'd you get it? The Holy Spirit just put it in there. He just made me a believer because that's how the Holy Spirit works. He works directly upon me. Or is it that the Holy Spirit operates through this tool of the Word of God, so that when the Word of God is being preached to this person, it is the Holy Spirit operating upon him. Let's see some evidence of that. Calvinism, where where does this idea of the direct operation of the Holy Spirit come from? It comes from the Calvinistic thought. Calvinism says the Holy Spirit operates directly upon the sinner. Calvin said, because man is totally depraved, he can't do anything good, therefore if God saves him, it has to be unconditional. Because that is true, then therefore the atonement has to be limited. Christ only died for some. And because that's true, the grace that God gives is irresistible. And because that is true, then therefore there is the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. And because that's true, we go back to total depravity and the circle begins and continues on. Here's why I want to focus. What the Calvinists call irresistible grace, remember irresistible, irresistible grace means you can't do anything about it. It's coming whether you want it or not. It's going to be put in your heart whether you want it or not. It is irresistible. Is the same thing that we call direct operation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit operates directly upon you and puts faith in your heart against your will if you had not decided you want to believe. And it's going to make you aware you're a sinner and what your needs are and what you need to do. That's how the Spirit operates, Calvin said. Now let's consider the fact that the Holy Spirit operates through the Word. Let's turn to Romans 8 and in verse 2. Romans 8, Paul said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. What he calls the law of the Spirit of life is the gospel. But it's called the law of the Spirit of life. The Spirit of life because the Spirit produces life. Remember we saw that? He quickens us. We're quickened by the Spirit. We saw that a moment ago. But it's the law of the Spirit because he revealed the Spirit. More about that in a moment. Here's the law of the Spirit of life. Now where did that law of the Spirit of life come from? It was revealed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed that to the apostles and prophets. And Paul said, we wrote it down. Whereby you can read and you can understand. So we've got the writings of Paul. Where did Paul get it? He said the Holy Spirit gave it to us. Holy Spirit revealed it to us. That's why it's called the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Well, that same law of the spirit of life is also called the sword of the spirit. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. You might want to underline Mark something there because this is important to answer the question. That the word of God is called the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6, 17. Talking about taking on the whole armor of God. We're talking, we're raising the question, how does the spirit operate? That's our question. This passage gives us a clue. And why does it give us a clue? Well, let's remember this. The Spirit revealed the Word. The Word is called the Law of the Spirit. It's also called the Sword of the Spirit. So let's go back to Ephesians 6, 17. Here's what it said. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. talking about a soldier. The sword of the soldier is his instrument that he uses. So we say the soldier killed the, the enemy. How did he kill him? With the sword. The sword was merely a tool, an instrument, but it was the soldier who did it. The soldier could say, I never touched him. I never touched that man. My sword did, but I didn't touch him. But he used the sword as the tool. So the sword of the Spirit, the tool or the instrument of the Spirit is the Word of God. So here's what I'm learning. That the word of God is merely an instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish his purpose. Now what did I learn from John 16? The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. How does he do that? He does that through his tool. So when I take the word of God and I preach it to someone and they become aware, you know what, I'm a sinner. How was that done? The Holy Spirit did that through the revelation that he revealed. It's the tool or the instrument of the Spirit. But let's go further and give more evidence. I want us to see that we're convicted and converted by the word. That same word the Holy Spirit revealed and is called the sword of the spirit. We won't take time to read all of these passages. But like Romans 1 16 simply says we're convicted by the word. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But I thought the Holy Spirit did this. He does. That's just merely his tool. Or get this one, get this one. Acts 18.8. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. How'd they become believers? By hearing. Turn to Acts 2.37. This is important. Acts 2.37. After hearing the preaching of Peter, you remember what the the statement said in Acts 2.37? When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. They're cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sins. When? When they heard this. When they heard it. What did they hear? They heard the word. I thought the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit was doing that through the word that was revealed. That's what was going on. So these passages show we're convicted by the word. Let's go even a step further. I want us to see that what the word does and what the spirit does are the same thing. Let's draw some conclusions from that. There are a number of things that happen in our conversion... Really the same thing, but it's just worded differently. For example, we're born again, we're quickened, we're saved, we're washed, we're sanctified and led. And the Bible attributes that to the Holy Spirit. I won't take the time to read those, but we're saved by the Spirit. We're washed by the Spirit. We're sanctified by the Spirit. But the Bible says we're sanctified by the Word, we're washed by the Word, and we're saved by the Word. Does that mean the Word and the Holy Spirit are the same thing? No. Does that mean there's a contradiction somehow? No. What that means is the Holy Spirit operates through His tool or His instrument, the Word. That's all that means. Here's some more. We are instructed by the Spirit. We're cleansed by the Spirit. We're convicted by the Spirit. The Bible also says we're convicted by the Word, cleansed by the Word. There's power in the Word. We're instructed by the Word. Contradiction? No. Does it say the Word and the Spirit are one and the same thing? No. It is simply saying the Spirit operates through the Word. We might say the soldier killed the enemy. We say the sword killed the enemy. Contradiction? No. Oh, you're saying the sword and the, and the soldier are the one in the same thing? No. I'm saying the soldier is one thing and the tool is something else. He uses that tool or that instrument to operate. Let's turn to Romans 8. Here's something else the Holy Spirit does for us in our conversion. If he's operating through the word, before I look at this point from Romans 8, that means the, the Holy Spirit operates upon me through the word that's preached and taught and is read. So I'm made aware I'm a sinner by the teaching of the Word, and that's from the Word of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just did that. And when I'm instructed about how to be righteous, I learn that from the Holy Spirit, from His revelation. And when I learn about judgment to come through the Word, I'm learning that from the Holy Spirit. You remember, let me, let me footnote here. You remember in Acts 15, I had you turn to Romans 8, well let's... Uh, Just as a footnote, go to Acts chapter 15. You remember that discussion at Jerusalem? When when the question of circumcision came up, and they settled that by appealing to command, example, and inference. Remember that? The three major speeches that were made. To a direct statement from God, James did. An example, Paul and Barnabas, and then Peter appealed to necessary inference from the household of Cornelius. But when the conclusion was drawn, you know where they attributed that to? Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. How do they know what the Spirit thought? How do they know what the Holy Spirit thought on that question? By looking at either a direct statement from God, an approved example of God, or some necessary inference, and they concluded from God's revelation, this is what the Holy Spirit thinks about that. So if I stand before you and tell you, the Holy Spirit says, forgive your neighbor. You say, where the Holy Spirit said that? said it right here. Luke chapter 17. I thought that was Jesus. Yeah, that was Jesus, but the Holy Spirit revealed it to us. Holy Spirit says you must be baptized for the remission of sins. I thought Peter said that. He did, but he did so by the power of the Spirit, you see. But well, let's go to Romans 8. Go to Romans 8 now. Let's talk about the Spirit gives evidence of pardon. How do I know that I am right with God and that I have been forgiven. Our denomination of friends often talk about evidence of pardon. And by evidence of pardon, they talk about this great feeling they have. Oh, I just got this great feeling. I, I was overwhelmed with this feeling. And I just, I just shivered all over. And I know I've got the power of the Spirit. And I know God has given me evidence of my pardon. And that's how I know I'm a Christian. Romans 8 talks about evidence of pardon. Let's look at Romans 8 and in verse 16. The text says the Spirit... Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit himself, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, our inner spirit, our knowledge of ourselves, That we are children of God. The Holy Spirit will give you evidence that you are a child of God. You say, I, I, I wish I had evidence and I know for sure I stand right with God. The Holy Spirit will do that for you. That's what this text says. Let's see how it works. The Holy Spirit, remember now the word is the instrument of the Spirit. Remember that? This is the law of the Spirit of life. It's called the sword of the Spirit. This is how the Spirit operates. The Spirit tells you what you must do. For example, it tells you to repent and be baptized. Now, that's not exhaustive, but that's an example of what the Spirit tells you to do. Now, I may not know whether you've done that or not. Your neighbor may not know whether you've done that. But I tell you who knows, your spirit yourself knows that. You know that in your inner self. You know what you've done. And this man says, you know what? I've done that. I repented and I was baptized. Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It means simply that when the spirit here agrees with this spirit, Then we conclude that we are children of God. That's how I know I'm a child of God. I look at what the Spirit said do, and I know what I've done, and I say, you know what, I've done exactly what the Spirit said, therefore the Spirit has just told me I am a child of God. That's how I can know if I'm a faithful Christian. That's how I can know if my marriage is right. I'd like to know if my marriage is scriptural, and and after this divorce, I'd I'd like to know, that's how you know. You go back and you see what the Spirit says, and you know what you've done, and if they agree, then you're right then you know you're a child of God. So the Spirit gives you evidence of your pardon. It gives you evidence saying, here's what you're supposed to do. You know whether you've done that or not, and if they agree, then you know you're a child of God and you know you're right with God. That's how the Spirit gives evidence of your conversion. Now let's spend just a moment talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the lesson will be yours. That's an exhaustive study within itself. We could spend an hour talking about the indwelling of the Spirit, which is different from the Spirit's operation in our conversion, and is different from the miraculous measure, and is different from Holy Spirit baptism, and is different from what Christ received, which was without measure. I told you there were different measures of the Spirit. What is the indwelling of the Spirit? Well, let's turn to Romans 8 again. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, that the Holy Spirit dwells in the Christian today. Look at Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. For you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Several times in that three verses, the reference is made the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Now here's the question. How? That's another study within itself. Does the Holy Spirit dwell directly in you? Or does he dwell in us through the word? I'm going to answer that question, but that's another study. I'm just establishing the fact right now that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And if we stop at that point, I already have to conclude, if the Holy Spirit dwells in me, that's not the same thing the apostles received, because that ceased, and I can't work the miracles. That's different from the miraculous gifts you receive by the laying on of the apostles' hands, because that ceased. There's no apostle around. And that's different from the Holy Spirit operating upon me in conviction. It's not the exact same thing, because that happened before I became a Christian, and now I'm a Christian, I'm told the spirit of God dwells in me. I already know it's different from other cases I read about in the Bible. How does the spirit operate upon us? Well, we've already considered the fact that the Ephesians chapter, or Colossians 3, 16, 17 says that, or Ephesians 6 and verse 17, that the, the spirit, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. But I want you to notice a parallel passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians 3. If you have even a smattering knowledge of Colossians and Ephesians, you'll remember that they are parallel books. I'll not take the time to establish how they're parallel. That is, the number of things that's found in one that's found in another. Other parallel books are Timothy and Titus, 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptics. They're very parallel. So anyone knows that, that has familiarity with these two books that they're very similar. Let me... Let me before we look at the, the shaded areas, notice that verse 19 says, speaking to one another in hot psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, the parallel account of that is verse 16, that uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you rich and in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Both passages are talking about singing, they're parallel. Worded different, but they're parallel. What I want you to see is that one passage says, just before the command to sing, said, be filled with the Spirit. But when I go to the parallel book, I don't find that phrase, be filled with the Spirit. What I do find is, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, when the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, that's parallel to being filled with the Spirit. That's how I am filled with the Spirit. That harmonizes with the idea that the Word is the sword of the Spirit. That's the instrument the Spirit uses to accomplish His purpose. So does the Spirit dwell in you? Sure He does. The Bible also affirms Christ dwells in you. Is he literally inside of you? Nobody affirms that. I don't know if anybody says, oh, Christ is really literally inside of me. He's personally inside. He's inside of me. The Bible also affirms that we dwell in God. First John talks about that. That we dwell. Are you literally inside of God? No. It's a relationship. The Spirit dwells in us through the Word. So when I feed upon the Word and I'm doing what He says, that's the Spirit living in me. That's the Spirit abiding in me. And so, yes, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does operate upon us. But He does so through the Word. Now, that's different from the other measures. That's not the same thing as the one baptism, I mean, of the baptismal measure, because there is one baptism. It's not the miraculous gift. Because there's no apostle, that's an entirely different gift. Well, that's a lot of material. But I tried to touch on several aspects of the Holy Spirit to answer the questions that have been raised. And that's the Holy Spirit's role in conversion. And why did some receive the Holy Spirit and others didn't before they were saved, for example? Well, in the case of Cornelius, it was to prove the Gentiles are now gospel subjects. So what we've seen, is different measures of the Spirit. The apostles and Cornelius received Holy Spirit baptism. Those on whom the apostles laid their hands received the miraculous measure. We see how the Holy Spirit operates in conversion, and we see the Holy Spirit still operates and is working in your life, even today, if we allow the Word to dwell in our hearts. May God help us to understand what is often a confusing subject of the role of the Holy Spirit. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come all together? We stand and while we sing.